Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at The Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just €3 Euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Reed Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. Today's guest is Jem Calder, author of Reward System, a series of interlinked stories that charts a group of friends in their mid-twenties as they struggle to make something of their lives in an indifferent, often hostile 21st century metropolis. Their struggles are both material, dreary temp work, lack of money, substandard overpriced accommodation, and psychological, alienation, depression, distraction, as well as the mediation and contortion of their emotions through their ever-present smartphone screens. But they are also, and crucially, generational struggles, as older relations and acquaintances, however well-meaning, repeatedly prove incapable of understanding how they live and think, and what exactly is at stake. Sally Rooney said that Reward System is an exhilarating and beautiful book by an extraordinarily gifted writer. Reading these stories, I found myself thinking newly and differently about contemporary life. While Holly Pester called it a crushing and clear-sighted portrayal of people dodging the alienation of work, money, and life's digital shorelines, adding that the short scenes were, quote, so brilliantly observed, I felt the reality of a generation in every detail. Jem Calder, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. <laughs> Hello. Thanks. Th- thank you for having me. Thank you for starting with some heavy hitting quotes. <laughs> I like to I like to, to raise the stakes at the beginning of these conversations. You certainly you know? have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess where I'd like to start is um, with a kind of the feeling I had when um, when reading your stories was I guess there were two two feelings which sat alongside each other. One of those feelings was uh, there's a lot in these things which are essentially perennial problems you know it's Mm. it's relationships between people Mm -hmm. it's it's love it's um, maybe coming of age it's finding your way in life yeah but sitting alongside that there seemed to be a series of new um new obstacles perhaps new things Mm. which uh the generation of your characters would have been more or less the first generation to to deal with, to have to integrate to these kind of perennial problems. So, yes, you know, yeah. principally technology is what I'm thinking of, the sure. ever-presence of smartphones and, and the like. And I'm just curious to know, when you were composing these stories, was that a sort of a distinction which you were conscious of, which you articulated to yourself in the sort of the conception of the writing of these stories? Or was it something that just, I don't know, that you inhabit so naturally as a, as a writer of a certain generation, that that mm. distinction doesn't... Uh, does it really come up? Great question. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I didn't really, I didn't think too hard about the role of technology in the books until I was a few stories in mm-hmm. and sort of realised how pronounced it was. I mean, a big part of that is like that's to do with my own interests. And, you know, also like what a short story is really good at, like charting the differences in communications between people right and Mm -hmm. if I was going to try and do that successfully and not even in a particularly edgy way or a way that feels overly modern you know like none of that stuff I really care about but it's like you have to those are the kind of like central points of you know like people don't go to like huge romantic like Tolstoyan balls anymore right like all all the thing happens over yeah all the thing happens over group chats like you know no one and especially not to get into it but you know the whole covid thing it's like people are incredibly isolated on behind their screens so Mm -hmm. yeah it just it was a natural product of sort of like trying to describe relationships now Mm -hmm. i suppose and sort of like how my characters would interact with each other it was like it became obvious very early i think i actually tried writing stuff like so i'd been trying to finish a story for years and years like literally since i was about i don't know probably about 20 22 you know like like really trying to get something finished in earnest and it that didn't click for a while like how to write about digital technological communication in a way that felt literary like Mm. 
and now it's done it feels like sort of i must have been such a bonehead because it's actually pretty obvious to do you just have to treat it like any other do you know what i mean like any mm. other conversation you don't really and I, i've had a couple of people say things like um you know like uh, and, and uh um, don't get me wrong you know I'm, I'm happy to receive any compliment uh, however <laughs> misapplied they might be but people have said you know and they're like all very excited about the way like technology is represented in the book and while I think that's great I think it's only a sort of, you know I'm not I'm not really actually trying to amp it up or accelerate mm -hmm. anything like these things are just pretty much you know e existent for everyone yeah, nowadays yeah I yeah think. I think I think that's that's true but I do, do think there is something which you have to grapple with when when you are writing about these these things like you see you see a lot of writers will or at least you know as, as sort of technology was occupying more and more space in our lives mm. there was one approach which was essentially ignore it right yeah um and yeah. because it's there's something it's hard to be poetic literary mm. about some of this technology which is either quite ugly or quite cold yeah and i think some of it i i agree with you actually and i think in some of the stuff I've been thinking about and, you know, maybe directions I'd like to go in, I think you can do it very well where you do sort of allow it to recede into the background. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually am realizing I was being a bit inaccurate before because I do do things like call phones, smartphones in a mm -hmm. way that just sort of like adds that extra syllable in to sort of give you a little bit of extra estrangement. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I am sort of trying to lay them out in the sort of like, sometimes you know like the ugliest possible way mm -hmm. and sort of like really delve into the mechanics of them so i'm going to take back my first answer <laughs> and say that actually I i'm really leaving it for... in though <laughs> no i i think it's more to do with i wanted to accurately portray like mm -hmm. all the sort of like flurry of anxiety and weirdness that's yeah, yeah. digital communication and to do that you know i found the best way of doing it was to sort of talk about it in this you know necessarily kind of yeah harsh and mm -hmm. you know all the language i use around the technology in the book does tend to be very um yeah very cold and pretty clinical um yeah and and i think that you, you know you know there are other ways of doing it and yeah like i've said i think in the future i probably will take a bit less of a sort of um you know, it, it won't be as su such a central theme in my work. Yeah, I don't yeah, think. Yeah. I mean, I really have no idea. But um, yeah. But I think there's also something kind of admirable about kind of playing the kind of lexical hand you've been dealt, right? Because yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think there's a there's one in one of his essays. George Orwell talks about the uh, how you know how the metric system is, of course, wonderful, but the imperial system is so much more poetic. You know, right, right, um, right, and right. I, and I think that's the the tendency of a lot of writers. It's say, you know, I'm not I, I'm not gonna I'm not going to engage with this stuff because yeah. it just it's going to kind of you know it's going to make my, my 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 work ugly in some way. Yeah. And I think you know what you do is you say, okay, well, this is the stuff that is there. Yeah, and let's also, find a way to not make it ugly. Yeah, and also I will say, you know, you sort of stand on the shoulders of giants. Like they're really I, for all the talk of, I think some of it feels very modern because it's specifically like some of the things you know like referencing like uber and dating apps mm. and things like that it you know it does feel like an innovation of sort of more of the last like 10 years than the last 20 but you know like there is you know there are plenty of like really good uh writers who um you know i love the whole like taolin megan mm. boyle like alt lit scene of yore where like they oh, were kind don't of say of your <laughs> i was i was i'm sorry you caught you got me twice here being being cheeky with you adam i'm sorry <laughs> no but you know what i mean it's like it is kind of like they're i'm thinking more of like that they used to write really awesome columns mm. for like vice which were mm. just like you know i would read those when i was uh, obviously i say your ironically but they probably are like a, a decade oh, yeah. Yeah, older yeah. than me and um yeah they did it so so you know i think you you, you do kind of like swallow you know like that that stuff like they, they metabolized all the sort of like digital side of their work so effectively and everything mm -hmm. and then you've got other you know like i there's an enormous list of like current contemporary writers like sally is a really obvious one mm -hmm. who just like you know like um yeah i remember reading conversations with friends with friends for the first time and being like oh shit of course you know like just kind mm -hmm. of the seamless thing of like going into her writing an email and then coming out of it so nice and mm -hmm. smooth and cleanly done and then other there's a really good poet. Well, there are a couple of really good, like people like Crispin Best or Sam Riviere, who just like, oh, yeah. again, kind of like are really good at just like articulating this weird sort of, um, you know, just like the, the sort of like you're shifting between like temporalities mm -hmm. as you're like living in the real world and then slipping into the phone. So I by no means take credit for any of the uh, 
innovations <laughs> I'm being credited with. <laughs> Sam Sam Riviere, former Shakespeare and Company, company Tumbleweed, of course. So oh, awesome. we, we will take credit for some of those uh, some of those innovations. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. And and also just like one of the best like poets going yeah. right now, like just so fantastic. Well, that was one of the things I wanted to come on to actually that you just evoked was that idea of this kind of. I guess these these two temporalities, um, and firstly, as a um, as a question of craft, I guess again, because mm. sort of as something as as a writer, sort of navigating these two temporalities at once, is it? I, I suppose again, it's sort of it's echoing my first question: Is it something which comes naturally once that's such a sort of an integrated part of of, of your life, or is it? sort of from a technical point of view getting getting mm. actually these two different temporalities to work on the page that seems to be that seems to be quite a technical feat again which is something that a lot of writers from past generations didn't have to didn't have to deal with yeah i mean it's interesting for me they are braided very sort of like closely together you know like there there is no real differentiation and a lot of the things that happen in people's uh you know like emails people receive and stuff you know like that has the same bearing on people's lives mm. as the things that happen in their real lives, I suppose. Um, but then again, I was thinking the other day, you know, like things that happen online or like, you know, things that you're informed of online all tend to be things that have already happened in reality, mm. right? Do you know what I mean? Like things are decided in reality and then they get kind of like codified or weirdly mm. verified on the internet. And that does sort of like have the, yeah, the weird sort of, you know, you're dealing with all this sort of like weird backdraft of things that have, you know, accrued in your inbox or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like you, you are sort of like always slightly out of joint in that way. But um, yeah, I don't know. In terms of actually like the craft side of things, uh, it's such a boring answer, but I really, I think all this kind of stuff is like, if I'd really thought about it too hard, I probably wouldn't have even been mm -hmm. able to start. Do, do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like yeah, you, yeah. Can, you can psych yourself out so much with sort of trying to, trying to plan ahead about mm -hmm. what you'll do. I, I think it really is something that just sort of like has to shake out like in the moment of composition, you know, mm -hmm. or like, or the moment of revision. It's like, you will find the sort of similar, you know, something that is hopefully the quickest way of doing it, but also the most artful way of doing it that will sort of like allow you to tell the story you want to tell. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah I'd be completely lying if I said that I had had any sort of like premeditated um, aims in that regard. Yeah. What one thing that I think unites all of the stories um, in the collection is this sense. I was I was trying to find the the right word. I mean, melancholy seemed to be part of it. Uh, mm. Melancholy, a certain sort of alienation, a certain sort of sense of distraction, or a sort of or an unrootedness. Like none of these words quite seem to capture uh, the the mood, but they all seem to 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 circle around it. Yeah, I suppose. yeah, yeah. Um, what whatever that mood is exactly, and perhaps you 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 have a word for it. But do you think that comes from these kind of divorced uh, time uh, time scales that you're working on? Like there's some sort of mm. some sort of separation. You, you're you're not in you're not in any one place at any one time. You're always kind of have yeah, one foot yeah, in yeah. the let's say real and one one foot in the in the virtual. Yeah, I mean they certainly have their. I'd say like. So for any of these like digital platforms to have been effective in the first place, they have to be feeding, you know, preying on things in us and in mm -hmm. our brains and hearts that already exist, you know, mm -hmm. but they do amplify and extremify things to, you know, such a sort of like horrible nightmarish state that, you know, it, it becomes almost like tragic in its mm -hmm. own way. But yeah, the general feeling, I think you're getting at the idea that like, uh, you know, some people would like the hole in the donut type thing mm -hmm. of like, you just have this sort of like void. I mean, I, that's, that's, an, you know, that is a kind of like historical literary, you know, young man yeah, first yeah. <laughs> debut work of fiction type cool. thing. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to, you know, be doing my part to try and represent that because that's really all you can do. Right. Is like mm -hmm. sort of take these timeless themes and just sort of see how they slot in and like reassuringly they slot you know like they describe very effectively mm -hmm. which is one of the things where I've, I've had other people ask about um you know are you worried about like how some of the stories will age and like some of the mm -hmm. references but it really doesn't concern me as well firstly because you know who's gonna care about my yeah, yeah. book <laughs> but but like you know it's uh 
none of the you know yeah these things are like so deeply rooted you know it it the the problem you know the names we give to the problems and the apps that serve those problems are yeah they probably are going to mm. all change in a couple of years time but you know like it these are i think the t- the themes are sort of timeless enough that yeah it's sort of a, a larger yeah. lineage of work i also think that's um if a book is going to last it's going to last and these kind of um worries about not you know about sounding dated actually they pass with time as well i think so so you know you would see uh, there was a time when you would see a reference to something like myspace and yeah. you know when when yeah, face, yeah, facebook yeah. had just become the big thing and everyone's like huh, myspace that seems a bit dated yeah. now what it does is it you know it anchors it in a particular time but you mm. breeze over it i think in the same way you breeze over sort of cultural references in f scott fitzgerald for example yeah, it either yeah, resonates yeah. or it doesn't yeah but 100%. if the the substance of the story is there yeah. then um it's not going to bother future readers too much yeah yeah the, yeah the thing i keep on thinking about is how much of um middle march is about that like voting reform act that like mm. allows landowners to increase you know so it's like and that you're it, you know it she goes on and describes it for like 30 pages at a time in some place but like it's completely riveting and you're so mm. drawn in by it. like it's just yeah i think things like that it's really just comes down to the quality of the writing like if it isn't timeless it probably was never going to work that well in the first place mm-hmm. so yeah 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 and i also think one thing though about uh your particular stories at this particular time is that i think we are on it's sort of we're in a transitional period like how long exactly that transitional period will last mm. and how and when it started and when it will finish it's obviously going to be up yeah. for debate but like we do see um for example the creeping and increasing presence of algorithms in yeah. um in shaping people's in shaping people's lives and shaping people's interactions mm. so for example in the first story of the book a restaurant somewhere else you know there's this um plot point which turns on somebody finding out a bit more about the person they're with by opening, you know, their, their internet browser and seeing mm. what uh, what YouTube, I think it is, throws yeah, up. Yeah, 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 yeah. There are them on the side. Yeah, and yet then, yeah, a few stories further down, um, we have a essentially a sort of a, a story told almost through a dating app, mm. where the the presence of the algorithm almost seems to have expanded. Uh, in the you know i don't know if there is sort of in a a sort of a temporal sense like the time Mm. between these stories but it just it almost feels like you are uh intentionally or otherwise kind of charting the the moment that these things kind of the tipping point of of a certain of certain things yeah and i mean i think you know you want to give those algorithms their due in terms of like they do have the sort of like you know they are there's a there's something in that um office story as well where the guy has there's a, a a man who has access to, um, you know, every, every, he like randomly gains access to all the information that his coworkers input mm. into their computers in a given day, and like that, you know, the algorithm they are like omniscient in this way, right? You know, like they they do really like decide what we think, and you know, they're capable of like basically putting like designer thoughts in your head, right? Mm. Like you know, you like anything in any like sentence that people really want you to see in a given day they'll probably be able to make you see and you know do it in such a way that you'll be thinking about it afterwards and it will direct the course of your thoughts you know at least for as long as you're interacting Mm. with that um so yeah i get stuff like that is just really about wanting to give those ideas their due and also you know a, a part of it for me as well was like i don't really people don't really have a lot of time to like it well, it's especially given the nature of like how fast digital communication works, and you know, especially if we're talking about things like social media or YouTube, which are basically just designed as like quicksand for your time, right? Mm-hmm. Where you'll just like be going faster and faster through more and more stuff. But people don't really have time to like unpack in their own lives. I certainly don't how these things actually work and actually shape your thinking patterns. And you know, so so I, I think I was using the stories kind of as a bit of a like repository for all my thinking to try Mm. and like build something out of it you know and doing that narratively felt really productive because you can do you know like you can show how characters change over time and Mm. how they are shaped by the media they consume or like the media that they're sort of I think there's a line in one of the stories which is about like how unfair it is that like algorithms are showing you like things you want to see before you even know you want to see mm. it yourself right it's like so you I, I think it is just about kind of like doing justice to the unfairness of that and especially also the the kind of like thing that's too obvious to even bother to talk about is like all this stuff is 
invisible right even mm -hmm. if it's like quote unquote open source you know like who actually has the like capacity and like mental resources to like pass through that do you know what i mean it's like yeah, yeah. we all know on a gut level and also from like things like the uh, facebook whistleblower like you know like we know vaguely that like these things increase our likelihood of like suicidal ideation but we don't really understand how they like impact us on a day-to-day -day level mm -hmm. impact our relationships so yeah i think part of the stories is trying to sort of like just portray that in a way that's a bit more you know like rips the veil on it and sort of like mm. shows you it a bit more nakedly and i guess one thing that we that we ignore and I, i'm not sure you haven't sort of mentioned this specifically in in the stories but it is there in the background is that these are all companies as well yeah, right yeah, and yeah, so you know sure. their their um their their aim is to make money and yeah. so for example with dating apps i mean you know they're their aim is not for you to find the love of your life in the first the first shot. And yeah, therefore there must be something cool. built into the algorithm to keep you coming back. Yeah, there is a line, just to sort of call you out here, Adam. <laughs> there is a line. I've given it a very close reading, but I, I didn't memorize it, I'll, I'll admit. There is a line, and I have to I have to direct you straight to it. In fact, possibly I'll read from this part. Um, there is, or will have read from this part, there is a line about the uh, male user of the dating app. I think mm. it's like, he kind of finds himself weirdly reassured to remember that the app only exists to furnish him with ads. Mm. But um, yeah, I know you're right. And it's such a, again, it's one of those things where like, it just is, um, you know, I mean, you, I feel a bit basic saying this because it's such a, such an obvious thing, but like, you know, like, yeah, these things aren't really our friends and like uh -huh. we do, and we do, you know, our emotional connection to them and the amount that we let them into our lives is, you know, they are like, in a way our like closest, you know, like, like relationships. Like, it's so incredibly sad to say that, but like, you know, like these are the things that we look out, mm. you know, like for more time than we look in anybody's eyes in a given day. Mm. Right. It's like, sure. we look at these like little glowing rectangles and kind of like, uh, yeah, like make our decisions based mm. on what they tell us. Um, yeah. 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 And that's yeah. one thing that this short story form allows you to do actually, as you say, specifically with the, I think of the, who you refer to as the male user, mm. um, in, in, in this story, uh, we keep referring to this story because I think repeating the full title, which is distraction from sadness is not the same thing as happiness. Yeah. would just uh, fill up too much, uh, too much airtime on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. We, we, uh, we got places to be. We can't say it that many times. <laughs> but like, if you ask at a moment, you know, the male, it gives you the opportunity and it gives your character the opportunity, I guess, and the space to, to question what these algorithms are doing to him and his experience of dating. So. Although, you know, he, yeah, yeah although the the only problem with that and again like the problem that i think all of us have is that those are those moments of questioning are sort of a perfect so you know they're a complete mm. loop of like the sort of like questioning is at the top of the loop and then the next bit in the loop is like feeling bad for not having any answers and then mm. the bit that starts the loop again is like just going back into browsing to medicate that sort of like you know empty feeling um mm. which yeah. All right. Let's have some cheerful questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I'm not sure how many of those I actually have. Let's, okay, let's move on then to the um, the city itself. Um, mm. And one thing is that will strike any reader is that the city goes unnamed um, yes. throughout the book. And and now you know this allows people to project and you know to, to kind of pour which, which I suppose whichever city they conceptualized onto it. So for me, it was. Uh, it was London and it yep. was, it just, it just felt so, um, you know, I only lived in London for a couple of years before moving to Paris, but it seemed, yeah. it seemed to capture so much of a certain, uh, I guess probably what the French would call like kind of an Anglo-Saxon metropolis, which is sort of mm. in, in some way sort of characteristically quite different from, um, from, from sort of the French conception. Uh, mm. But there, there was clearly um, an authorial choice not to name, um, not to name the city. And uh, was it, would, did it stretch beyond just not wanting to kind of, uh, I guess, restrict yourself to uh, cliches of neighborhoods or cliches yeah. of, you know, particular, particular areas? I mean, there's a, right, there's a few different elements to this. So I'm going to try and attack it from as many different directions as I can. So to start with, I didn't live in London for my whole life and I'm not from London. And so mm. I've always been a little bit sort of... Mm 
I wouldn't say resentful, but, you know, just sort of a bit skeptical of like how much of UK literature and like certainly the publishing seems to be concentrated in London. So I kind of wanted to like leave it half open for that reason. There was another element of the fact that like I was living in London around the time when I started working on these stories. But then um, by the time I had the opportunity to sort of like, you know, work on them more full time, you know, with a bit of contract work on the side or whatever, um, it, it, London was too expensive to mm-hmm. live in. And yeah, I kind yeah. of had a little bit of a galling feeling of like, so I'm kind of like mythologizing this city that <laughs> is essentially, you know, like not even not, not to say that like Sadiq Khan is going to like give me the keys <laughs> to the city and say like, you know, like, oh, you've done such a great job of training. But, you know, it's like it, it kind of felt a bit galling to like be writing about people's sort of like, you know, interesting experiences in a city where I couldn't even really afford to live mm. myself um and like a lot of my readers probably couldn't either like that would be something that we share and then also the sort of larger point of just like yeah you know like you walk around uh, I think there's a line in the book about like an area of London that's being either re or sorry uh, <laughs> an area of the city no not giving anything away it could be anywhere it could still be anywhere but like there's an area of the city that is either being re or hyper gentrified mm-hmm. and I kind of uh you know i've got friends who live in other cities and that seems to be that sense of a sort of like every place you know a lot of certainly in the central areas of cities a lot of Mm. them seem to be becoming more and more the same um like i've got friends who live in berlin and some who live in new york and like i think it's a thing that everybody is experiencing in these sort of major capitals is like you know oh and and like dublin kind of has it worst of all because the you know the housing there has just become so incredibly expensive Mm. because what happens is all the silicon valley you know offices sort of like land there and then reproduce around them all the sort of like same social structures and housing crises um so i i think it was a mix of all those things i also read a bunch of novels in about like 2018 that were a lot of them were about Oh, no, no, so, no, say about 2019. And a lot of them were about like the Trump presidency. Right. Um, and they didn't mention him by name. Uh-huh. And I and I know that different writers had different reasons for doing that. But I that kind of like opened a bit of a door again. Like I I don't really have a strong feeling either way about that. I think there are some ways in which it seems a bit daft, but other ways in which it seems like totally legitimate and a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I, I generally like seeing people doing that gave me a sort of like a little feeling of okay like that do you know what i mean like there is something you can do to just kind of like resist like the complete londonization of this Mm. book like um but yeah i mean having said that like i'm totally happy for people to read it as london and to read that but but equally happy for other people to project other things but that's it i think one thing that it does Mm. is it it makes it a much more um welcoming book i suppose in a way because Mm. one thing that i've i've often resented is i don't know even among writers that i that i otherwise really love is that they i don't know they might be the story might be based in New York and they'll they'll say something like, oh, of course he lived in Greenwich Village and we're all supposed to know. Yeah, what yeah, means. yeah, yeah. And it's sort of, I think it's, there's a certain, I don't want to say exactly sort of elitism, but there's something. No, I, there definitely yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And like, you know, a lot of people like, will go to you know like are are able to attend like elite universities in these places and stuff. And, you know, it does like, I, I, I don't know, for most of my life, I felt pretty like, oh London good for you you know it's, it's it's like it it is like this sort of like weird unattainable goal and to sort of like talk about it in this way that's like very offhand and uh yeah I don't know just something about it didn't really sit right to me and like yeah I, I just like couldn't find a way of reconciling that in my head mm-hmm. um and I, I totally agree with you like it feels like everything I like read or listen to like you know is yeah like references like fifth street and like yeah like i'm just supposed to kind of casually know um where that is and yeah it, it just feels like it feels like a barrier to entry that i just mm-hmm. sort of like decided to knock out of the way but i think in future like the idea of place has become a little bit more interesting to me uh-huh. i think i i guess also like i just kind of wanted the world to feel as sort of like cold and hostile as i felt like the world mm. felt um certainly at the time i was writing those stories and in certain ways it's only gotten more cold and hostile so you know like to not really even give you a foothold of like mm. where the places are you know seemed like another good you know similar to the thing of like calling all phones smartphones it's like mm-hmm. all, all smartphones smartphones it's like you know it just does a nice thing for me where it kind of like 
categorizes it in this sort of way that doesn't allow you to sort of familiarize yourself to it mm-hmm. and sort of you know generate that much attachment to it if that makes sense yeah yeah i yeah, know very much so it's interesting this idea of the kind of the the coldness the sort of the hostility and another sensation i had while reading a lot of these stories was this sense of sort of insecurity and mm. insecurity both as I said in the introduction, kind of materially about jobs, about flats and things like that, but also emotional insecurity, this sort mm. of dissatisfaction, this melancholy. Um, and I remember yeah. uh, like a few years ago, I was teaching um, language teaching at uh, Sciences Po, which is kind of like the, the LSE, I guess, of, of Paris. And my students were all born in the sort of, in the mid nineties, I guess. Mm. And I can't remember what we were talking about, but there was this sense of I was just quite struck by how um, how pessimistic <laughs> so yeah, uh, they, yeah, they yeah. seemed. And, and I, I talked about it with them. And one thing, they came up with an incredibly insightful point, which is, you know, they asked me um, when I was born. And once I got over the shock of, you know, <laughs> somebody could be born in 1980. Um, they said, well, look at, look at what you, you know, how you grew up and look how we grew up. Like you say, so that meant that I was nine when the Berlin Wall fell and like we went Mm. through this kind of the 90s which for a lot of us particularly in Western Europe was sort of a very optimistic open exciting time and that I think sets your personality whereas they said look our first memories 9-11 the dot-com crash and like and everything getting shitter and shitter from yeah 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 completely I I 100% agree with that and that's been a thing I've been you know that that really has you, you know you do your personality forms around like your general economic circumstances Mm. like you know if you're if you're living the sort of like downwardly mobile london existence that a lot of people my age and younger are like yeah you are you sort of it it is a sort of like threadbare temporary existence Mm. like nothing you know like your place in this city is like by no means certain like as soon as you drop off the end of it there'll be someone in to replace you you know who's probably like Mm. smarter and younger and hotter than you (laughs) you know so like yeah that level of insecurity and sort of like you know no one owns a home no one can really like settle no one can even really afford to have children Mm -hmm. you know on the one hand it's like it is unbearably like pessimistic to have to really think about those ideas and bear them out but it also just would seem insane for me to like start writing about do you know what I mean like Mm. a life that doesn't exist for myself or for anyone I know um so yeah I I I think that's interesting that your um that your students said that and yeah even things it's funny as well because those things they can be ambient level events Mm. like I of you know I wasn't really paying that much attention to the 2008 financial crash but Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean like in your as when a thing like that kind of happens in like the background of your life and you're seeing Mm. it on the news and you know your parents are worrying about it like that does sort of like set the yeah it sort of changes the temperature that Mm. you're sort of like growing in and then only later do you kind of come to understand that you're like you know you graduate from university and you're like living through the repercussions of this event yeah 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 actually that's one thing I was going to pick up towards the end but it is sort of it feels relevant now is this um one thing that I suppose did surprise me in a sense is um the the very I think it might even be the very first line of the very first story um I yeah. At the beginning of a December 57 harvest, harvest prior, to, prior the... to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations projected start day of total global soil infertility. I just did that on another interview, funnily yeah. enough. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to see if I can remember it. Yes. At the beginning of a December 57 harvests prior to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations projected start date for the era of total global soil infertility, Julia got the job at Cassine. She called the closest person she had in her life, who was her mother, to deliver the news by voice. I can't believe it. I know, you'll be, I know, it's such a step up. I know, such a step forward. Her mother laughed, then kept laughing. Imagine that. The low fidelity audio of her mother's laughter bade Julia to laugh as well. Their laughs were identical in cadence and dissimilar in pitch. Julia raised her non-smartphone wielding hand to her head. I'm imagining. Yeah, and so so you have that line. And then I think it's I, quite near the end of the collection there's a sort of um, a discussion about like peak oil and uh, you know, is, someone's yeah. dis- dis- a half-baked says, discussion. Of, yeah, yeah. And being, sort of vaguely remember being outraged about it or something like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. And and I suppose one of the, I guess, the cliches, let's say, of your generation is this kind of, this sense of climate crisis and this sense of it being sort of so much more preoccupying mm. for people the younger they get compared to this, um, yeah, I guess a sort of a, a slightly... Uh, disconnected sort of older generations and yet 
it was quite striking to me that there are these references and they do seem to in some way occupy a mental space, but not at the maybe at the ampler and the sort of volume that we might expect. Yeah, I, that's really well observed. Um, I think that's a great point. And I did kind of like try to have like kind of, you know, pepper in things like that and references like that. And yeah, the moment where one of the characters kind of like half remembers something he's read online about peak mm. oil and kind of goes off on this rant that doesn't really go anywhere that, you know, like because that does to me really feel like how people communicate and have to conceive of these things, because mm. some of them are just so uh, impossibly bleak that you, mm. you know, if you were to like actually sort of integrate these things you're hearing and reading about and, you know, can read about it from very um, reputable sources um if you were to actually sort of like internalize those things and base your life on them like i'm not really sure what in uh, sort of rational circumstances you can do so you know of course you have to have like blind optimism and essentially just like distract yourself with like you know your jobs personal relationships mm-hmm. entertainment um but <laughs> i wish i could answer this question in like <laughs> any more of an optimistic way i mean we're like living through the experiment right like no one really knows how you know how uh, any of this stuff will turn out or like mm. how it will impact our relation to the world in the long term but i think i th- also think something you're getting at there is like a lot of the characters are sort of like inherently disempowered like sure. they, yeah, they yeah. know they can't really activate any real change mm. and i think that is the main sort of like cognitive dissonance that yeah. like a lot of people uh you know around my age have to deal with is sort of like you know these sort of like crazy repercussions are sort of like rumbling out there somewhere mm. in the atmosphere but you're also like you just have no way of doing anything and i yeah. guess all we can really do is like wait for this generation uh-huh. of like politicians to like die off yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. that like hopefully someone younger will be able to do it but that's a really interesting thought actually which i hadn't quite sort of articulated till till this moment is that that is a disempowerment which stretches down to every level of these characters lives yeah and like so it's not just dis you know they don't just feel disempowered compared to when think of the climate crisis but even when thinking of you know escaping the the sort of the drudge work of um you know kind of uh, i think you know one of your characters is a sort of a uh a sort of a um copywriter yeah 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 and which 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 relatively i mean like i've worked in a lot of offices in my and like in in you know like thankfully i got into copywriting and you know that was quite useful for me but like i i've been i kind of like remembered recently that there were years early in my sort of like working career where i was like ah it'd be so cool if i could be you know like copywriter is actually a relatively like pretty sick job like you know like (laughs) i can't really complain you know like some of these sort of like admin stuff i've done before yeah um but yeah the the disempowering thing is um uh yeah other people have observed that and it was kind of it's kind of news to me like Mm. i I, but it it is right and like yeah people have um like, like like sort of the way in which some of the characters are you know a little bit more passive in their mm. lives and there's that bit about one of the characters julia she sort of like doesn't like to intervene in her own life and mm. likes to sort of let fate take its natural course yeah and uh yeah i don't know i wonder if that is a product of the sort of like general circumstances like this generation have it's a question of like which way does it flow like does it does do you feel disempowered about the climate crisis and that sort of seeps down Mm. into every element of your life or do you feel disempowered in the sort of you know the the least significant or yeah areas of your life and that sort of filters up it's or maybe a bit of both it's difficult to tell yeah yeah what is downstream from Mm. what um I have to well, say though, one yeah. thing with the the question of sort of work and particularly mm. sort of the admin work and in you know and the, obviously it's in the story uh, search engine optimization where that is most explored. Yeah, that was um, beyond you know certain elements or one particular element which which we'll talk about in a moment. That was sort of almost depressingly familiar, actually. Yeah, like yeah, that yeah. kind of that level of sort of data inputting and those kind of jobs, which mm. you know I I did during my student days and beyond for mm. for for years. It's sort of a part of me, I thought, sort of assumed that advances in technology might have helped eliminate this kind of yeah, you'd be depressing really office environment that, like, Ricky Gervais kind of immortalized yeah, yeah, more yeah. than 20 years ago now. Yeah, no, I know you You would be surprised. Um, they're, they're all still out there, and I'll be applying <laughs> for plenty of those jobs soon enough myself. But, yeah, it is, 
I know. And when you're in those, when you're in certain offices as well, you are kind of like struck. I mean, that that is that feeling of like, you know, the Charles Dickens like status house. You know, you're just yeah, like, yeah. you are the sort of like weirdly Miss Havishamized of just, you know, <laughs> like it. time doesn't seem to pass. I think there's a line in one of the stories as well about like, you know, um, j- just like one of the characters trying to figure out how long, like, when the office was actually built and when it was furnished because it kind of exists in this like in between time where it's mm-hmm. like she is sort of like stuck in this permanent like i guess it's like in the 90s you know mm-hmm. it's like you, you can't really tell when any of these buildings actually originate from yeah um and they they all just seem so like set you know mm-hmm. like that there's there's no you know that's another way in which like you can't really interfere with your surroundings too much you know you 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 do kind of just like sit at your desk and have to get by Mm -hmm. and i think a weird thing for me was also like when i was working various jobs like some of them way better than others um i kind of realized that there was you know there's so little like really good actually interesting fiction interesting being the operative word Mm. there of that it does deal with the workplace yeah which just feels insane because that is where pretty much everyone is Mm. most of their lives um and yeah so i I did kind of like really want to take it on myself to to write something good about that yeah yeah um which yeah writing about it is one thing but making it interesting is uh did take some did take some tinkering around (laughs) it's a it's a book from a completely different age and with like completely different concerns but i uh a, a, I think a book that does the sort of the dreariness and also the kind of odd hierarchies at work in the office environment very well is Joseph Heller, um, Something Happened, uh, his right, follow-up right, to right. Catch-22, which sort of, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a weirdly circular book. Like you, you're not entirely sure if you've read this paragraph before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, um, yeah, I sort of, it's it's one, it, I think it, it, even though that was written, I guess, back in the, the 50s, early 60s. Well, they got, yeah, that really shows like, you know, it, these things have like um revolutionary road is a really good one sure. too, Richard yeah, Yates, yeah. where like you know his and like richard yates was doing those jobs while he was and you know like yeah it is crazy i mean like sure like some of the like uh out and out sexism of those books is you know like 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 that the characters engage in has changed mm-hmm. and like people are probably less apt to like embark on an affair with the receptionist but like yeah. other than that you know it's like yeah these structures and just like this feeling of like being weirdly like hung over at your desk and trying to like although the interesting thing now is that we have the internet right and so like a part of the job you know there's this weird thing where like we kind of know other people at our desks like their heads above the monitors around us they can't possibly be in in some offices mm. um can't possibly be engaged in their work all this time like yeah. we just know that that isn't what's happening so yeah, yeah. you have this sort of like weird you know kind of like disconnect where it's like we're all kind of pretending not to see what the other one is doing feels like this very weird like hyper normalization type thing where like we just get by by pretending you know that like everyone is super busy all the time yeah it's the george costanza thing in seinfeld where it's like if i just sit if i just sit here and look busy (laughs) make a bed under the desk (laughs) yeah i forgot about that but yeah right it's like if if i look busy like i mean it is a revolutionary concept like you know like if if i just perform busyness then mm. that makes me busy it's it's kind of amazing so so two things about that. the first thing which was the thing i was going to say sort of uh about the, the work environment which has changed and this mm. is particularly pertinent and this is certainly not a generational thing it turns out because uh an, a member of parliament was recently got in trouble for this right. pornography at work yeah. right? like that, that mean, just just is for this the, a, just is for this the a listener. british thing like <laughs> yeah so for the listener that features in in one of the stories uh, yes. the character is watching yeah and that has also happened uh in part um I, that wasn't really I, I suppose that was me just sort of like trying to take to the nth degree you know like the idea of like how much people are like disconnected from their work and uh-huh. are alienated in the workplace and are just sort of like seeking ever more insane distractions right. and entertainments in order to kind of like alleviate that feeling mm. and i mean to, to, to some extent that's inherent to like work in general you know like you're never sure. going to be super engaged like eight hours a day but yeah in the like insane disempowerment mm. of these offices something else which is going on at one of the the desks um in this office is one of the characters is writing working on short stories and one thing yes. that really sort of struck me about this collection and strikes me generally actually is that books and writing and stories feel in one sense so alien to this world of uh social media of 
um, of you know of, of YouTube of this. That it, it feels like the, the the pace at which they work, the concentration at which which they require, whether to read them or to write them, feels of another age and of a mm. sort of fundamentally different character. And yet, the character in your story is writing and has sort of has obviously raised this up as something to do of value and of something of interest. And this mm. is something we see in around us too, like so many brilliant books being written by young people who were brought up so completely embedded in this kind of new world of distraction that we, mm. that we all inhabit. And I'm just, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about the, you know, we're recording this from a bookstore as well. Like mm. the, something about the medium of the book and the art form of the of fiction writing whether whether short form or long form that is it is is it sort like of a form of resistance to to some of these other forces or does it sit alongside them uh, mm. in some way that's a great question and I, it, it's certainly something i think about a lot it's very hard to get an honest read on that though and part of it part of the difficulty i have thinking about that is because you do get and comfortingly this the people have been saying this for a long time but you know like you do get your like random sort of big buzz about like the death of the novel and like sure it's finally happened like the novel really is dead and then like it kind of like 10 years go by people do it again so that you know it it, 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 it it's it's difficult man like because sometimes i do wonder like who actually is reading this do, do you know what i'm like mm. I mean, it it seems reasonable to imagine that like readership numbers in general are declining. Like, mm. and I know we're headed for sort of like a decent sized population decline in the next few years as mm. well. But yeah, I, I, in terms of resistance and things, I I think for me it's more just like amazing that anybody still do, do you know what I mean? Like mm. it, it feels so precious. I know Don DeLillo said the thing a while ago about like, if we get to a point in time when people give up on reading novels, we'll have given up on pretty much what it means to mm. be human itself, which, you know, I, obviously he's being Don DeLillo about it, but <laughs> like, I do kind of agree. Do, do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like yeah. that quality of attention. Again, I'm loath to say things like, we're losing it we we can't focus but even though i do kind of feel like that's true but like yeah it it does feel like a very sort of like integral thing that i really kind of like hope people don't give up on completely mm. again I, this is going to make me maybe a little bit unpopular but i also do think it, when those questions comes up part of the responsibility does lie with the artists and does lie with the publishing companies right like oh, yeah i'd say most of it lies with them to be yeah, honest yeah 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 exactly it's like some things are interesting and like some books are just inherently interesting and like you have to give those books their do, do you know what i mean and it's mm, like sure, sure. if if writers aren't engaging enough like you know it, it kind of is the job of the book to be a piece of entertainment and my favorite writers are the ones who kind of reconcile that and sort of who do understand that you know no I, I mean not to say like your reader's time is really short you've got to optimize it and because obviously I go on I ramble on for pages <laughs> at a time about like you know how the mechanism of a dating app works or something um but you know like to to make it exciting and interesting the whole way through I, again I know that sounds like such an obvious take but like mm. I, I almost think it's so obvious it kind of bears do you know what I mean that that to me does feel like a a bigger part of that equation than I think a lot of people let on. Yeah. Or even beyond the sense of entertaining, I think it's just, you know, produce something that is worth reading. <laughs> yeah. It's meaningful, right? Like, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Like don't blame the, don't blame the, don't blame the readers. Um, you know, if you're, if, if writers are, you know, if, if writers are only producing novels, which uh, readers don't want to read, then, you know, it's, it's the writers that are killing the novel. If the novel is dying, it's the writers that are killing it. Yeah, 100%. Um, and, you know, I say that as a novelist myself, so it's kind of, yeah. uh, you know, we, we, but we, we need to, I think we need to step up, right? It's, um, and that's not a case, I don't think it is a case, as you say, of sort of making it short, making it snappy, doing yeah, kind of, yeah. you know, going for the the entertainment, but there's something, yeah. there's something sort of fundamental that it needs to be, I guess, relevant to, would be the word. Yeah, of course, yeah. And I use the word entertainment in a way of, 
you know, in a sort of like humbling way, right, right. Do you know what I mean? Is it's like, I think that actually can be a real gift. Mm. And like, you know, if anybody listening to this is working on anything or a writer, you know, like I, I do think you have to allow that to be your friend, you know, like mm. you have to let that into the work because otherwise, because, you know, like um, some of my work is like punishingly bleak and dark <laughs> and can be different, you know, like I'm, I'm well aware of that, but I, that's why I make, you know, take pains to make mm. like, things feel a bit electric and a bit do, do you know what i mean yeah, like yeah, give yeah. it that sort of like indescribable quality of i don't know just being kind of fun to read like yeah, you know yeah. will someone want to carry on to the next sentence um and that's and, something yeah. we yeah we often forget i think about so much great literature like we've just done this huge ulysses project at the shop for the last right, six right, months right. and like yeah you know that book it is it is hard it is dense it is um you know, it is, it's, there's a, there's a lot about it, which makes it quite a kind of onerous reading experience, but there yeah. are all, you know, but Joyce was also insanely amusing, like, like really yeah, yeah, properly yeah. funny at times. Yeah, for sure. And, and that gets, that gets overlooked because we have this idea that great literature can't or shouldn't be funny. And uh, yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. And a lot of the best parts of Ulysses are like, kind of, you know, it's like, it's springy and weird and you know what i mean he's like mm. doing like kind of fun innovative things man it really feels like everyone's reading ulysses right oh, yeah. <laughs> everyone i know in sort of like literary spheres is, is into well, it's, ulysses, a, it's right? a centenary you know it's oh my gosh i'm so <laughs> dense all right you gotta you gotta cut that <laughs> i was literally in dublin the other week and i was like why is ulysses over yeah. i uh listener at home i've read ulysses don't you know i, I I am a good reader. I really did read it. So please, please buy my book. <laughs> oh, brother. Oh, man. Well, that is pretty much all we've got time for. Um, all that remains to be say, obviously, Reward System is available from Shakespeare and Company, from the, the bricks and mortar store, uh, from our online shop as well for our listeners around the world, or from your local independent bookstore, uh, wherever wherever you get your books. Um, all that's left for me to say is, Jim Calder, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I love the shop. I love the tumbleweeds. I have fond memories of your shop. I, I can't wait to be there again. And yeah, thank you so much, Adam. Cheers. Cheers, man. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>